You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. So for today, I want you to expect a long introduction followed by a rather rapid going through of our points. <laughs> uh, I have a six-point sermon, but those six points we're going to go through rather quickly, but we have quite a bit of front matter to begin with. So that's what you can expect. Well, on September 17th, 2017, the Washington Post ran this article, quote, the world as we know it is about to end again if you believe this biblical doomsday claim. The article focused on a man by the name of David Mead. Mead predicted, of course, the end of the earth was coming. His prediction was that a fictional planet named Nibiru was due to collide with earth on September 23rd, 2017. Well, the good news is today is July 30th, 2023. So that obviously didn't happen, did it? But the headline is still kind of funny because it, it really helps reveal what most people think about when they hear the end of the world, right? Kind of like, here we go again. It's just something we've kind of come to expect. We're so used to people coming forward and saying, this is the day that an asteroid is going to hit the world, or this is the day that the rapture is going to take place, or this is the day that Jesus is going to return, that it almost doesn't even phase us anymore, does it? Well, here's what I want you to know, that today we are going to talk about the end of the earth, or actually more accurately, the end of the age, or the return of Christ. But here's what I can assure you of, that I will certainly not be making any predictions as to when that will happen. So you can just take a sigh of relief right now. But I do know this, and you should know this too, it's coming. It's coming. But here's how we know it's coming, because Jesus tells us that much, right? And indeed, it's something we're going to be reflecting upon um, as we enter now the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, which is certainly the most extensive teaching about last things by Jesus that you will find in the Gospels. Um, now, that said, we're going we're gonna to dabble into, we're just kind of kind of dip our toes into the Olivet Discourse, and then for the next couple of weeks, we're going to step away, but we'll be coming back, okay? And uh, we definitely have a number of messages. There is so much for us to take in within the Olivet Discourse. Um, before we answer our passage today, however, let me make something clear. I don't believe that any subject in the Bible is simultaneously more interesting and more scary than the subject of last things. How many of you feel that way? It's kind of a both and, isn't it? And I say this because on the one hand, people love thinking about what's going to happen in the future. In fact, I would say it's, it's even natural for Christians to want to think about the future, right? I mean, God has saved us for an eternity to be with him. And we just want to know, like, what is that going to look like? 
how much of our future kind of coincides with the things we experience today. You probably have had all sorts of questions like, will I know my spouse? Will I know my kids? Like, what will that relationship be like? Will my pets be there? I don't know, all sorts of questions, right? So we get excited to think about the future, and especially since we see that this, the future is spoken about in a lot of passages in our Bible. In fact, I mean, you think about the Bible, there's at least 50%, 60%, 70% of the Bible happens to be dealing with prophecy and what's going to happen in the future. So we kind of wrestle with these things, and we go, oh, what, is, what does this mean? And how does this passage connect with that passage? So there's curiosity, there's excitement. But on the other hand, we've also, most of us, witnessed quite a bit of hostility over the subject of last things, haven't we? As we see Christians kind of duking it out, and we see people get really, you know, passionate about their respective opinions. All sorts of disagreement when it comes to last things. When's the tribulation happening? How long is it going to be? Is there a rapture before or afterwards? The millennium. Is Jesus reigning physically on earth? How long is that going to be? And people get very, very passionate about these things, even to the point where you would kind of think, like, if you don't have all these things figured out, you must not even be a mature Christian. I mean, how, how can you really honor Christ if you don't even know how long the, the tribulation is going to be? Well, friends, let me tell you something. I have never met someone who was more godly in my eyes simply because they had their eschatology spelled out. And I'm guessing that you probably haven't either. And no doubt, that's why there's been a number of uh, pan-millennialists that have, that, that pool of people has just grown over the years, right? People who just say, it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> that's my eschatology. It's all going to pan out in the end right? Well, let me just assure you of something. In our church, we do believe that learning about last things is important, but mainly our perspective is this, that if the Bible talks about something, then we should probably study it and do our best to understand it, right? Especially because, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And why? So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, no, we will not be taking the position that it's all just going to pan out in the end. We'll just leave it at that. We've got a lot written on our Bibles regarding what's going to happen in the future. We have to give ourselves to uh, understanding things, but at the end of the day, guess what? We also understand that good Bible-believing Christians hold different views when it comes to these matters. And so, therefore, we do not believe that they should become a litmus test of one's faithfulness to Jesus Christ. There are things that are of salvific importance. Your eschatology is not one of them. In other words, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about how you are saved— that's of salvific importance. And so that's primary. That's foundational. That's where we live and move and have our being. Okay? As for the future, we're going to be okay living with a certain amount of tension within the family of God because 
There are things that we just won't understand and fully comprehend until the day that we see Jesus face to face. And with that in mind, understand, I will teach you what I believe the Bible says about last things. But there is much room for disagreement. However, I trust that even in our disagreements, we will all find a great deal of common ground as we think about the return of Christ. I mean, after all, we do, at the end of the day, all agree, Jesus is coming back, right? And he is. And this should lead to greater faithfulness, prayerfulness, and readiness because we are looking forward to that day. And with that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, where we are going to look at verses 1 through 14. So Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Now, like I said, there's some disagreement as it comes to the Olivet Discourse. However, uh, the disagreements aren't really going to be that major today. We're going to focus mainly on the things that all Bible-believing Christians can pretty much affirm as we look at verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, Jesus left the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... And then the end will come. Well, the most important place as we begin thinking about the Olivet Discourse is certainly with the setting, which is highlighted in verses 1 through 3. So if you would, look there. We read, quote, Jesus left the temple and was going away. So the temple is the backdrop. And that's important because remember what Jesus has just done, right? Remember what we talked about last week. This is finally the moment in Jesus' ministry where he tells the Israel's leaders, uh, guys, you're done. It's over. Judgment is coming. And we looked at how strong a words Jesus had for the religious leaders. He pronounced seven woes upon them. In fact, I want you to just look back in your Bible. I want you to zero in especially on verses 37 through 38 since they come immediately before what we're looking at now. Jesus has this lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Just let that last statement just stay in your minds. See, your house is left to you desolate. <laughs> you have to think of how much of a shock this would have been to the disciples. Your house is left to you desolate? They had to be thinking, how is that even going to be possible, right? Because, I mean, this is the best that the temple has ever looked. Remember that Herod himself funded this particular temple and the putting of it together. It was probably the most extravagant temple that one had ever seen. What do you mean it's going to be desolate, Jesus? Possibly they even thought, but, but given how the temple looks, I mean, is that not a sign of God's approval? Certainly that's how many people would have thought, and who can fault them, right? I mean, even today, people look at buildings as a sign of God's approval. Wow, those people must really be honoring the Lord. Look at how God is taking such good care of them. They must be a really faithful church. I tremble at the thought that we would ever do the same. Is God really that into buildings? As far as I can tell, people are more concerned with buildings when God is more concerned with people and where their hearts are. A building can quickly become nothing more than an empty shell. That's what happened to the temple. Even though it was filled with activity, even though it was regularly filled with worshipers, the presence of God hadn't been there for years. And unfortunately, as Jesus makes clear here, that wasn't going to change. That would continue to be the case. So just think of the disciples. They had to be absolutely stupefied. But look at the temple. What do you mean it's going to be desolate? It's going to be a wilderness. They're just taking it all in. And maybe you've had moments like this, right? Maybe it's at a baseball stadium. Maybe it's a newly built school across the street, a park, a skyscraper, right? But at some point, you saw something, and you turned to the person next to you and went, well, look at this, as you just marveled at the design and the choice of materials and the craftsmanship. That's what the disciples were doing with the temple at this point, and for good reason. I mean, the temple was absolutely an architectural masterpiece. As I said, it was funded by King Herod. It actually took 80 years to build. It was constructed of white marble, overlaid with gold in several places. It, it just glistened in the sun when you looked at it. It was a symbol of grandeur and majesty. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that from a distance, the temple appeared like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not gold was exceedingly white. It's said that the structure was so dazzling that it was even just hard to look at on a sunny day. Even more, the temple compound was enormous, a sprawling complex of courts, porticos, and other buildings wrapped around it. It was larger even than the Roman Forum, 
And Herod's extension of the Temple Mount made it the largest religious complex in the world at that time. So no wonder the fascination of the disciples, the concern, the mystery, the confusion. <laughs> and then just after this, the scene shifts. And by no surprise, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, what's the next thing that we see? Well, the disciples are obviously very curious. And with the words of Jesus still lingering in their minds over his coming judgment, over God's desolation of the temple, naturally they ask some questions, which we observe in verse 3. Look there. The disciples ask, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, there's a lot of discussion about these questions among scholars. Particularly, how many questions are actually being asked? Some believe it's really one question. Others say it's two questions. Others say it's three questions. Let me just tell you, grammatically, it's two questions, but the second question has two parts to it. So question one is a when question, right? When's it going to happen? And then question two is a sign question. When are you coming? How will we know when you come? So why do people think maybe one question, really, or one thing in view? Well, that's because here's how the disciples understood things. They believed that if the temple was going to be destroyed, then it could only mean one thing, the return of the Messiah and the end of the age. All happening at essentially the same time. And why? Well, there's a pretty good explanation for that. Actually, if you read Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, things are just kind of laid out this way. Three things are mentioned. In verses 1 and 2, you read about the wrecking of Jerusalem. In verses 3 through 8, you have the arrival of the Lord who destroys enemy nations. And then in verses 9 through 11, you have the establishing of a kingdom. So the disciples expected all of these things to happen and in a sort of rapid succession. Destruction of the temple, coming of the Son of Man, the end of the current age. Bing, bang, boom. But does Jesus affirm this? No, he ultimately tells the disciples that things are not going to turn out how they expect because the picture they have in their minds just is inaccurate. And indeed, what they need to do is they need to understand the timeline is going to be elongated. There are some things Jesus is going to tell them they need to add into their chronology, events they hadn't accounted for. And that's what the Olivet Discourse then is all about. It's Jesus laying out what must take place before he returns. Now here's the thing, and this is where things get tricky. The fact is that nobody disputes that what Jesus predicts here as in some measure going to happen in 70 AD, 40 years later. He's talking about something that's going to happen to the temple. But the question is, how much of what Jesus says, particularly in verses 4 through 35, applies to that event with the Romans coming in and killing countless Jews and literally bringing the house down? How much of it is a past fulfillment? How much of this that Jesus mentions still has to be fulfilled? Right? And there's a spectrum. So some see it mostly as fulfilled, and plenty see it as, as you know, there's still 
a lot left to be fulfilled. And let me just tell you my view is that most of it has yet to be fulfilled. A little bit of it was fulfilled. Most of it has yet to be fulfilled. But like I said, it won't really make much of a difference today in verses 1 through 14 because there's pretty widespread agreement that even though what Jesus says to the disciples will certainly apply to them, it also seems to apply to later generations too. And many of these things we're looking at, we can look around our own lives and go, I see those things happening each and every day. Well, with that in mind, here's how I want you to think about our material then. I want you to understand the kind of birth pains, that's a key word, birth pains that Jesus says his people will have to endure before the end will come. A phrase used by Jesus in verse 14. Now, interestingly, you probably notice this, that the New Testament writers talk about how we are in the last days. One example I would give you is from Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. You can find this in other places, too. So the last days, according to many of the New Testament writers, is that time between Jesus' ascension and his future return. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We're still in the last days. We'll be in the last days till Jesus comes back. So when Jesus talks about how the end will come, what does he have in mind? Well, this is how I think uh, Jesus, I guess, is envisioning things. Think of it as the last days of the last days, okay? The last days of the last days. And here's why I say that, because when we get to verse 15, we're going to read about a person known as the abomination of desolation, and then we'll hear about a time of tribulation such as has never been experienced before. But neither of these things would seem to, at least in my mind, fit very well with what we know happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD, especially in view of how the Bible causes us to envision the abomination of desolation and an end-of-the-age type of tribulation. Again, though, we'll get into that more, uh, well, not next week, but in a couple of weeks. In any case, my position is this, that we are yet going to continue to experience birth pains until Jesus comes back. So the birth pains started upon Jesus' death and resurrection, and they are still continuing to this day. And what a picture, right? What a picture to use birth pains. Pretty accessible, especially for our church, since there's been quite a few births in the last couple of years, right? The picture is obvious. A woman goes into labor, her contractions begin, and then they build, and they build. There's a growing intensity to them. Well, hang on that thought, because that's how Jesus said things will continue to be until the end comes. Uh, and again, friends, we're 2,000 years now into the birth pains, and they're still growing. The world is getting crazier. It's getting more chaotic, it would seem, more extreme, more difficult by the moment. And here's my question for you today. How are you doing at enduring the birth pains? How are you do doing at enduring the birth pains? And I'm guessing for some of you, you're, you're, you're thinking, well, it's, it's not really going that well, Pastor. 
It's not going that well. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm feeling really stretched. I'm ready to tap out. And if that's you, here's what I want you to know. Don't do that. Don't tap out. Don't lose heart. Because yes, even though things are crazy, God is in perfect control. He is in perfect control. And if you don't feel like that, then maybe here's what needs to happen. Maybe you need to reassess your expectations of what things should be like. And why? Well, because wrong expectations certainly drive deep discouragement, don't they? And disillusionment. And, you know, that's easy to understand. It's also easy to get caught in a place of wrong expectations because you and I live in a world that feeds us so many lies about what to expect as Christians. If you listen to some gospel preachers, they make it sound like becoming a Christian just fixes everything, right? Trust in Jesus and and life's just going to be smooth sailing. Trust in Jesus and you don't need to worry anymore, Trust in Jesus. He'll fix your marriage. He'll fix a conflicted relationship with your kids. Everything's going to be fixed. But is that the case? No. Right? And in many respects, trusting in Jesus in certain ways is going to make life harder. Now, is there reward for trusting in Jesus? Yes. And I don't want to... I don't want to under-communicate the blessing and the benefits of the cross. But there is also a cost, is there not? And even more, while we walk on this side of the cross, there will be no shortage of trials because life will still be marked by extreme challenges, many of which we get a picture of this morning. So this morning's outline is simply six things you can expect as you wait for the return of Christ. Six things that you can expect as you wait for the return of Christ. So what are those? Well, first, we can expect false messiahs. Look at verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, as many of you know, to be the Christ means to be the anointed one, literally the promised Mashiach, Messiah. And I point this out because while it's possible, this is referring to those who declare themselves to be Jesus. And it's possible Jesus is saying, some people are going to show up claiming to be me. We actually don't have any evidence of that happening in the first century. We do have evidence, however, of a few people who were Messiah types. And in fact, Josephus and the book of Acts both happen to mention them. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, there's the mentioning of a man named Theudas. I think I'm saying that right. Theudas. And he led a revolt against the Romans. Immediately after he is mentioned, there's also another man mentioned by the name of Judas of Galilee. Then in Acts chapter 21, verse 38, there's the mentioning of another guy, someone referred to as the unknown Egyptian who led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. Interestingly, Josephus also writes about an unknown Egyptian man, one who claimed to be a prophet, and he led a large number of followers in a revolt against Roman authority in Jerusalem around 52 to 58 AD, which is why most scholars actually think that Josephus is talking about the same man mentioned in the book of Acts. 
So these are a few men that were, you could say, Messiah types, but, but even they did not claim to be the Messiah. That said, as you get later in history, you definitely see all sorts of odd things happening, and there are plenty of people who claim to be Jesus, and this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch, but let me just give you an example of several of them. In the 18th century, there was a, a woman known as Anne Lee. Apparently, she was the leader of the Shakers. She claimed to be the second coming of Christ in female form. In the 20th century, there was a person named Sun Myung Moon. They apparently happen to be the founder of the Unification Church. Uh, of course, many of you are going to be familiar with this next one, Jim Jones. Uh, Jim Jones is the founder of, P of the People's Temple. Jones initially gained fame as a faith healer, and then he gradually began to assert that he was the reincarnation of Jesus. In 1978, unfortunately, he led more than 900 of his followers to commit mass suicide in what became known as the Jamestown Massacre. And believe it or not, there's even some people who are alive today who are claiming to be Jesus. One lives in Brazil, another is Filipino, and then there's also a guy who, uh, who was a former British intelligence officer. Careful of those intelligence people. Now, I am sure we will continue to see these things happen, whether it is people showing up claiming to be Jesus coming back, or whether it's that they just claim to have the answers to life's greatest questions and to be some sort of a hero figure, right? But be careful. Be careful. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. And when he comes back, you will know it, okay? It will be very difficult to mistake. So that's the first thing Jesus says to expect false messiahs. Now let's consider another. Secondly, he says to expect international conflict, Expect international conflict. Look at verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus doesn't say the number of wars will increase. In fact, interestingly, it could be argued that the number of wars has decreased. But when they happen, they tend to be of a global scale, don't they? However, Jesus says that we will continue to hear about wars so we will hear of wars more frequently. And that's kind of interesting when you think about it, right? Because is, is there a day that goes by when we don't think of a war going on in some place? Whether it's Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan or Ukraine, which of course has much to do with the advancement of technology, doesn't it? Today we have access to the rumor mill 24-7. Similarly, when are we not hearing about the potential of war? For those of us living in the United States... We hear about it almost constantly as we think about China, right? Lots of conflict with China, and everybody's nervous. Where is this going? They happen to have a lot of power, a lot of control, and a, a lot of influence over the things that we buy and the things that we possess. They happen to be accruing land on a regular basis. They now have even recently, of course, set up a satellite location in Cuba, right, to spy on everything going on, and people are shaken by this. Are we going to go to war with them? I hope it doesn't happen. I think we all do. But is it possible? Yes, because this is going to be the reality of living on a fallen earth. And Jesus points this out in verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom 
against kingdom. So expect false messiahs, expect international conflict. Third, also expect this, expect natural disasters. Look again at verse 7. Jesus says how there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, interestingly, if you listen to mainstream news, you would think that humans are the cause of most natural disasters, right? You know something, though? I'd like to issue a correction. The fact is we're responsible for all natural disasters. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty tough to argue against that, right? Because it's very evident that sin has caused the world to be completely off kilter. Sin has affected everything. It's affected the crops out those windows. All sorts of weeds are coming up. And, and you know, farmers have been trying to figure out how to reverse the effects of the fall on their crops for, for quite some time. But they will continue to have to deal with weeds. Genesis, when we look at Genesis, we know the connection, right? Because that's part of the curse of sin. <laughs> that's part of the curse that, that God says to Adam. He says, by the way, Adam, because of what you've done, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Paul talks about how creation is affected by sin in Romans 8, doesn't he? He talks about how creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is in bondage to corruption, and it is awaiting a time when it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So yes, continue to take out insurance for what you own because natural disasters will continue. Hurricanes, tornadoes, hailstorms, earthquakes, it's all part of living in a fallen world. And Jesus says then to expect them. Fourth, expect holy hardship. In verse 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So we see that part of following Jesus is going to lead to death. But notice how this even comes about. Of course, there's going to be an, a governmental aspect to this. There's going to be a judicial aspect to this. It's one of the reasons I can't get my mind around post-millennialism or Christian reconstructionism because what's the picture of the world? That it's going to continue to get better and better and better? I have a tough time reconciling that with what we're reading here. Jesus says, no, 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 Christian. Things are going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. If that's not the case, it does away with the birth pains illustration altogether. It doesn't make any sense, right? Will there be victories on earth? Yes, and we'll notice that in a moment. Another thing Jesus tells us to expect. But, oh, friends, hardship is to be expected by becoming a Christian. And this will only continue to the point where Christians will be hated by all nations, Jesus said. This is going to reach a global scale. Christians will be hated for Jesus in every part 
of the world. And then in verse 10, we're told, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So think about this. There's going to be people increasingly falling away from the faith. People who blended in, who attended Sunday services, who participated in life groups, who were part of prayer gatherings, increasingly are going to fall away from Jesus. And not only are they going to say, ah, you know what, this, this is not quite what I signed up for, they're going to start reporting those that felt closest to them. We kind of got a picture of what this might look like when COVID was going on, right? People reporting their neighbors to the government for not wearing masks, for not getting vac vaccinated. Friends, I, I think that was just a preview of what things are going to be like. You know, it used to be Christians could run and hide. You think you can hide today? The government knows everything there is to know about you. They know who you are, who you're married to, who you used to be married to, how many kids that you have, how many kids your kids have. You can't run and hide anymore. And all of that technology, I am guaranteeing you, will one day used, be used for the systemic oppression of Christians. It's coming. People are going to have this wake-up moment they're going to go, I'm going to lose everything if I'm a Christian. No thanks. I prefer to have my life. And they'll renounce Christ, and they'll report you. But Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 10, didn't he? He says, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. One of the most painful things that I can possibly imagine is having one of my children renounce me as a father, say that they were in this terrible home because of what they were taught and report me to the authorities to be handed over. But that is the picture that Jesus provides of what's going to happen. So expect holy hardship. Fifth, expect false prophets. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So you have increased apostasy. You also have an increase in the number of people claiming to speak on behalf of God. And the effects of their teaching are going to be so profound, people will be led into greater immorality. They will be increasingly unashamed of their sin. And as a result of all of this, there's just going to be this growing coldness in people's hearts. Affection will diminish. Compassion will fade. All those things that God hates will be celebrated. All those things that God celebrates will be condemned. That's where things are moving toward. Again, we get a small picture of this happening every single day, right? Where the world is telling you, no, you need to celebrate this. And yet you know when you read your Bibles that God says, no, that is to be condemned. That is sin. But false prophets will multiply. And of course, even at the time of the apostles, they knew that false teachers immediately after 
they were gone. We're going to enter the church, right? Paul, he says in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves, for I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Test the spirits, friends. Test what you're being taught. Test what you're being told. Stay in your Bibles. False prophets, they are continuing to increase. And yet, and yet, what will happen in spite of their efforts? The last thing you need to expect, expect global evangelization. Expect global evangelization. And this is where we are reminded that the most effective way to spread the gospel is how? Persecution. When Christians are persecuted, the gospel advances. You want to see Christianity go to the farthest parts of the earth? Just add persecution. It is like throwing gasoline on a fire. Because the purity of God's people's love shines forth more in persecution than at any other point in time. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This statement seems to just coincide so well with what Jesus says when, when he said to Peter that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So is there going to be opposition? Yes. Is there going to be hardship? Yes. Is there going to be many days and weeks and months of discouragement? Yes. And yet, God will accomplish victory through his church. So friends, these are the birth pains. These are the things you can expect. These are the things that will continue all the way up into the great tribulation that we will talk about next time we're together. But are we to fear? No, because Jesus is in total and complete control. And actually, as we think about that, that's where I want to point out our closing thoughts here. In particular, there are three statements that Jesus reveals as he explains these amazing challenges. First, in verse 24, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. This is why Jesus is telling the disciples what's going to happen. People are going to come, going to try and get you off course. Don't be alarmed. Don't, don't be led astray. Second, see that you're not alarmed. Don't panic. Don't be pulling for the ripcord. Don't, 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 be, don't be trying to just cut out of things. This is to be expected. And then the third thing I want you to reflect on is in verse 13 where Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why don't you just appreciate how Jesus communicates the hardship in advance? There's a reason he does this. He does it for our protection. He does it for our peace. And he does it for our resolve. God is in control, friends. Abide in Christ. Draw near to him. He can give a peace that surpasses all understanding. He can give a boldness in the face of adversity like nobody else. He is a good Savior, and he cares for us deeply. 
Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.